electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with David Faber, who's going on Hour 3. Welcome, David. Carl and John are off today. Legacy Tech makes a comeback. You heard it. Cisco shares popping on better-than-expected results. We will break down the quarter, what it signals for the overall market and tech at large, plus SoftBank struggles continue. Activist Elliott dumps its stake. We will discuss what that means for how investors are thinking about a tech rebound. And then Bed Bath and Be Gone, Ryan Cohen, only picking up items for a short-term stay. Retail investors ditching the shares as well this morning. So is the meme rally over? David, kick us off. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Over for today, at least. All right, let's start with Cisco, though, this morning. That stock, as you see, and Sarah just told you as well, up about 6.7%. The company reported fiscal Q4 results that were a beat on both the top and the bottom lines, although revenue did decline slightly. Now, last quarter, Cisco's stock actually was down sharply. This after the company warned about the impact of the war, of course, between Russia and Ukraine, and even more importantly, perhaps at the time, trouble it was having in the supply chain due to those lockdowns in China because of COVID. You can see the drop that took place there, sort of in the middle of that chart there uh, in the middle of May. A very different tone this morning, though, when we spoke with CEO Chuck Robbins on Squawk on the Street. You know, we talked about, Deirdre, a lot of things, including when I asked him, well, what are you seeing from customers, given we've talked so often lately about the possibility of recession? And his answer was pretty simple. Things are looking good. And he made a point of saying not just in the U.S., but even surprisingly to him in Europe and Asia. I heard that. That was actually surprising because a lot of the people that do not like the current rally we are in say that there is another demand shoe to drop that we're going to see flow through this earnings season. David, what a difference a quarter makes, right? Last time he was on, that was, what, about 90 days ago? Very different tone. He even said he had fun this morning. Um, What's also so critical about Cisco is that they report later on in the season. So we're already starting to look ahead. So to his point that demand has not been weakening and the supply chain issues are sorting out, that could provide a lot of optimism um, for the next season. Yeah, it could. I mean, because he's not seeing a shift, as you say, in in demand at this point. And again, last quarter, Deirdre, it wasn't really as much about demand as being able to actually meet it because of the supply chain issues. Very unclear at that point when he sat next to us then as to when that would end. But obviously, they did start to make progress. He says they're not completely through in terms of dealing with those supply chain issues, but certainly were able to make progress, get things together and get product out the door to their enterprise customers. Yeah, and you know, Chuck Robbins, he's such a straight shooter when he came on last quarter. He told it like it is, so his optimism all the more sort of encouraging when you heard him just about an hour ago on Squawk on the Street. Let's get more on Cisco and bring in J.P. Morgan, Samik Chatterjee. Um, Samik, it's great to have you this morning. What did you make of the earnings? Does that give you more optimism for the rest of tech and enterprise demand? 
Yeah, I think uh, particularly with Cisco, uh, you have to highlight the impressive execution they had over the last 90 days. And I think David was highlighting the prior quarter as well, sort of the impressive turnaround in the execution, um, both on supply as well as orders. I think both areas need to be highlighted here. Uh, if you take it over a longer time period um, and you put that in context for Cisco alone, you have to say that the um, when the supply constraints for the industry were well telegraphed for the last 18 months, and what you see is really Cisco sort of starting to come in line with their peers in terms of executing on supply management, and that's what the investors are cheering here because demand has remained resilient. Um, so what does it mean for overall enterprise tech when you sort of look into the demand picture? I think. Uh, overall, one, uh, let's hit supply first, which is, does uh, we're see, starting to see the early signs of easing in the supply chain. It's still coming at a higher cost, though, uh, uh, just to note. I mean, we've seen this across all uh, uh, Cisco and its peers as well, that you're seeing supply easing. There's more availability in the broker market, yes. but everyone's paying a premium to buy that uh, component. So it's not all sort of uh, great on that front. But that said, supply is improving and you're able to deliver revenue upsides through that, which is what investors really like. Uh, on what does it mean for sort of the broader coverage? You should expect to see some of that supply easing help revenue upsides as we sort of get into the next phase of earnings season for us uh, in the next couple of weeks with a lot of hardware companies reporting. Uh, that said, on the demand side, I think what we've heard through the earnings season has been a bit mixed. And I think investors have been a bit surprised, though, that hardware hasn't seen or talked about the same uh, demand moderation, and this is hardware specifically to some of the uh, Cisco's peers, hasn't talked about the same demand moderation or mixed signals in relation to demand, as you've seen some of the other ecosystem players, be semiconductors, be it uh, software companies, talk about sort of slowdown in billings. And I think where we stand today, there's obviously a bit of debate about where demand goes from here. It does mean that right. demand remains still quite resilient. But at the same time, you can argue, you can probably have an uh, argument that given some of the supply constraints, customers are probably trying to keep an eye on supply and manage sort of their orders at the same time. And maybe hardware sees a bit of a delay in terms of seeing that same macro effect. But again, we don't know yeah. the perfect answer to this, but everyone's still sort of debating where demand goes. And I don't think every investor out there is convinced that demand's going to remain resilient for the next six months. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let me let me stop you there. But I mean, you asked a question on the call as well about small and medium-sized businesses. Is that an area that sort of you're wondering about as you bring up these questions? Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, his, everyone's sort of gone through the data historically, and it's sort of a very uh, typical cycle to see the SMBs or uh, commercial segment, as Cisco calls it, sort of start to see some of that weakness first because the business fundamentals or the revenue fundamentals of those companies typically tend to pull back a bit more. And then enterprise, large enterprise always has a bit longer sales cycle. So by the time you see sort of those impacts come through, it's a bit longer. And so again, on the rebound, you see commercial SMB rebound first, enterprise sort of uh, do that later. Now, what's again puzzling a bit more here is when you look at the year-over-year numbers, and I no Cisco pointed that order growth was sort of sequentially very similar for both, but you look at the year-over-year trends and commercial is actually holding up quite a bit better than uh, maybe on the, if you had a, if you were concerned about demand, you would think that commercial would roll over a bit more. So it's clearly sort of a unique situation where you're not seeing the same sort of uh, trends that you've seen in the past. Uh, we do our checks pretty regularly with the right. distributor channel and we've seen sort of mixed signals from them. and. I think one thing that stood out is 
while there are mixed signals, it's very much in contrast to where we were sort of three months ago, where mm -hmm. everything was looking very optimistic, very positive in terms of demand. I think yeah. you're starting to see those sort of mixed signals come through, which are always an early sign of that, yes, there is something sort of underlying all this that could be pockets of weakness. Again, I don't think everyone thinks everything is going to be weak. At the same time, everyone doesn't believe everything is going to be immune when it comes right. to the customer verticals. But there is that sort of initial expectation of some moderation. So, Samik, we've talked about the enterprise, um, certainly comments from Chuck Robbins making it look better than maybe some had feared in the second half of the year. What about the consumer, though? Consumer stocks have really been leading this rally, and it is at odds with the fundamentals. What does that look like to you for the rest of the year? Yeah, it's, you make a good point, and it's interesting. We just had a, a report out uh, yesterday at which we were highlighting that it's surprising how consumers led uh, the rebound here. Uh, and obviously, within that, Apple, right? Um, so, but e even if you take Apple out, the consumer stocks have done really well. And I think there's uh, one part group of investors that are looking at the earnings sprints and saying the macro isn't as bad as it uh, was expected to be. And hence, even though the, there are incremental data points this earnings season that the consumers weaker than anticipated, but a lot of that is in China. And you're going into inventory digestion in smartphones and TVs. We expect there to be some inventory digestion in uh, consumer PCs as well in uh, uh, coming forward. But even despite those incremental negative data points this earnings season about the, about the consumer markets, you're clearly seeing investors say that the rebound yeah. might be sooner than expected. Well, well, we'll continue to debate this throughout the show. Samik, thanks for being with us this morning. Great to get your insights. Yep, my uh, meanwhile, pleasure. Thank you. Let's check in on the meme trade, David. I know you have all morning shares of Bed Bath & Beyond. They are getting absolutely crushed this morning, though. If you think about this in relative terms, it's up so much even in the last week alone. But the recent moves caused by a recent filing that uncovered investor Ryan Cohen had plans to sell his entire stake through his firm RC Ventures. The stock popped more than 30 percent when Cohen first revealed his position in the company back in March. Uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, as I mentioned, it is still up 70 percent on the week thanks to resurgence in the meme trade. David, um, I've been looking on Wall Street Bets this morning. And it's kind of amazing. I mean, they're just not buying it. You hear commentary like this form is only meant to give notice about a proposal to sell. It doesn't actually mean that he is selling. Uh, does any of that even matter? No. Uh, in fact, he very well may have already sold. Um, although, again, I've mentioned this a number of times. I haven't been able to confirm it, but a number of market participants are under the expectation that, in fact, he has, given the volume yesterday and the timing of the filing right. itself. Uh, but we don't know. We haven't heard from Mr. Cohen uh, in any way. And, of course, he ha had that significant options position. Now, we've also pointed out many times that what's, it was old news, but the market mm -hmm. was treating it as though it was a new purchase. In fact, it was February 28th and March 1st when he bought uh, options at various strike prices between 60 and 80. Um, one would expect, given a move up there as well, that he perhaps has benefited from that. But right. it is fascinating to watch this craze yet again play out in these shares. And, of course, we should remember to remind people, remember to remind, we should remind people, <laughs> forget the remembering part, just remind people that uh, the fundamentals of this company are horrible um, right now. They're trying to, you know, affect a turnaround. They yeah. fired their CEO. They have all sorts of inventory of things that didn't sell. They had a terrible experiment with private label. 
Uh, and so the future is very much unclear, but it's not looking particularly good, despite what has been that huge move up in the in the stock. Right. It's a momentum trade, though, right? Investors, at least the retail ones on the likes of Wall Street bets, are concerned with those fundamentals. I'm looking at a Wedbush note right now with a price target of $5. Right. Look at it. It's yep. trading at nearly 18 um, but, David, it, it's so interesting. We talked about this yesterday a little bit with Andrew Osorkin, that we are back in this moment where the meme trade um, is very, very active. It raises questions as to where's the money coming from, right? We thought it was from stimulus checks, but a lot of folks have lost money in the markets over the last year or so. Um, how long can it keep going, I guess? Is it still a good thing, though, if it's bringing people into the market? Um, you might have thought that they might have moved upstream to higher quality names, but here we are talking about... BBBY and GME and AMC again. Yeah, I mean, listen, though, they have a lot in common. If you recall, uh, GameStop, when it started to make its move, there were a lot of questions about the viability of that company and its franchise. Uh, and there still are. Uh, and the stock, many analysts had, uh, you know, price targets that were single digits. Uh, same with AMC, of course, given the troubles mm -hmm. that it had. Typically, this works best when you have a company that is being heavily shorted, the prospects yep. for which are really in doubt. Uh, and it's it's working well, and nobody you know, plays it better. Nobody, Deirdre, than <laughs> exactly. Ryan Cohen, right? Well, well. What about Adam Aaron? I mean, he's raised a lot of money yes. on, on their yes. main stock status. You're a great point. Uh, he actually is the maestro when it comes to it. He's but AMC, master. at least, is in a you could argue is in a better place in terms of what he was able yeah. to do as a result of the meme uh, craze, uh, raising so much money to give it the cushion that it needed, given how much indebtedness it took, had to take on during the pandemic when nobody was going to a movie theater. Uh, as we take a look at AMC shares now with his latest, I think it's tomorrow, isn't it, that you're going to get that preferred share, which essentially is acting as the a apes, split of the stock. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, like, what is it, a split on steroids? That's what I've heard it been called. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to keep and an so, eye so on So we could be shares. talking about this again tomorrow. Most likely we will be. Yeah, yep. We very well <laughs> may be. All right. Let's zoom out, though, and take a broader look at the markets overall. Our next guest thinks the double-digit turnaround for the S&P just this last month is not just a bear market rally, but that so-called inflationism could be bursting. Joining us now, Frontstrat Global, co uh, Global, Global Advisors co-founder and CNBC contributor Tom Lee. Tom, nice to see you. It's been a while since you and I have spoken. Um, give me your take here as to why you don't think this is simply a bear market rally, because plenty of market participants, I'm sure that you speak to and that I do, are still looking for weakness yet to come. Uh, hi, David. Yeah, great to see you. Uh, I think there's been a, a cognitive negative bias to markets since the Fed began tightening and since inflation rose. And most of our institutional investor clients think that this is a template for a recession. And many think this is August 08. Uh, so we're only in the early stages of a deep downturn. And the reason we're more constructive on markets is one, uh, I, it, over the really the past nine months, I think investors became convinced that inflation is with us for years and it's very sticky, but it looks like inflation is proving to be a lot less sticky and maybe even more sensitive to gasoline falling because of how gasoline moves through the services CPI. And if that's correct, then we are tracking more towards a soft landing that's more like 2018. And, and that would mean markets have already discounted much of the Fed tightening. And so we would want to be buying this rally. And then I think in the past two weeks, the market internals, whether you look at the percentage of stocks above the 50-day or market retracements, or even moving back uh, towards a 200-day, are actually kind of a confirming that this looks more like the start of a new bull market. 
rather than a bear market rally that leads to new lows? Um, you know, let's go to the bond market. So I know you've also been talking about that in terms of where the tenure is right now and what the implied P.E. therefore is and whether you can anchor some sort of a P.E. for the S&P based on that. Um, are you getting confident that, in fact, P.E.s could be going higher as a result of sort of, let's call it, you know, we're in the right range for the tenure? David, that's definitely getting coming back to us because when clients talk about the fear that inflation's sticky, if we point to the tenure at 2.8. Um, that's hardly where it was in the 80s. Um, the tenure should properly reflect inflation expectations, and at 2.8, it's really a market that thinks inflation gets back towards something like 2% after a couple years. And then we know people talk about the inverted yield curve between the 10-year and two-year, but what they have to keep in mind is that if inflation in the next two years is at four, the two-year yield has to be higher than the 10-year. So you're gonna get a forced inversion just because of the, the contours of inflation, and it doesn't mean that the curve on a real basis inverted. So uh, yes, I think the bond market's telling us a better story than the equity investors wanna believe. Tom, um, I want to press you a little bit on your view of Fed policy. Um, you see it as becoming more dovish, but what leads you to believe so? I mean, we got minutes yesterday, and it was easy to see sort of the hawkish side of them. More restrictive rates is required. Commodity price decline, even though you've talked about it, they say that it's not enough. And they said that there's a danger that inflation becomes entrenched. Is this market not simply fighting the Fed, which conventional wisdom tells us is a very bad idea? Uh. Well, I think that the word dovish and hawkish are used too many, by too many investors and by really by most of our clients as like a binary fact. The Fed needs to raise rates. Um, they're at the neutral rate now, neutral rate now. But let's say that they get to three and a half, even three, seven, five or four, uh, which is further tightening. That may not be a shock to equity markets. And you can look at many periods when the Fed's been raising rates and that second half of a rate cycle, equities start to rally. That even happened in August 82 when the Fed hadn't given up the inflation fight, was still trying to shock markets, but the stock market bottomed 10 weeks before the Fed even posited shifting. So I think that this is not necessarily about a Fed pivot. It's about the fact that the Fed isn't trying to shock markets and deliver a, you know, essentially a nuclear financial tightening. That's what they were trying to accomplish early this year. That's not the case anymore. What leads you to Tom, believe that's not the case? Why would they be less aggressive, Tom? Sorry, that was sort of my original question, leaving hawkishness yes. and dovishness aside. What commentary right. have you heard from uh, them? Well, I, I don't think the Fed's going to be any less aggressive. So I think if, if we look at September and through year end, I think there's 100 basis points of further tightening. But for financial markets, if the 10-year stays at 2.8, but the Fed is getting towards 4. Now, there's going to be some panic because that looks like an inverted curve. But what I think is going to be key and in retrospect will matter is that the 4% is coming because realized inflation is quite high. So the Fed does need to keep rates high short term. But tenure, the 10 years reflecting sort of durable or sustained inflation, that's staying low. So I, I think the markets can handle the Fed getting to four, that's not dovish. I mean, that's still raising rates. I just don't consider that a shock to markets because that's what's priced into these swaps market today. Tom, you know, I can remember years ago, we used to talk, we used to track active managers underperforming. I have no idea if you gave up 
even bothering with that. But uh, if you haven't, where do things stand in that in terms of them trying to play catch up? David, uh, we actually do track the data. We'd be happy to send that to you folks. Um, it's not been a great year for active managers and for hedge funds. Part of it is everyone's been whipsawed and there was a lot of what I'd consider rage capitulation in June because the fundamental data in June was just so shockingly bad on the inflation people gave up. Um, what we've seen in the last six weeks talking to our clients and we speak to our, I mean, our team speaks to hundreds of clients every week. Uh, the institutional investors still very nervous because they think there's earnings risk. They're cautiously positioned. There's nothing that can give them the confidence to actually add risk. So this is a rally that's been met with a lot of skepticism. Now, it could run out of steam and, and make new lows, but given the incoming data, and we talk about that inflationism, isn't as hawkish. I mean, today's Philly Fed shows, you know, inflationary pressures, even in the PMIs, are kind of decreasing. I think it's a lot easier for the S&P to make new all-time highs than to make new all-time lows. Okay. Tom, we'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come, Elliott is having trouble seeing SoftBank and Masayoshi-san's vision. Plus, Amazon wants to be more like TikTok. Those stories are ahead. Tech Check is back in just two minutes. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Time for a gut check on Verizon. Moffitt Nathanson downgrading the stock to an underperformant cut its price target to 41 bucks. Firm says while AT&T has adopted an aggressively promotional stance in wireless, Verizon has seesawed between periods of promotionality, that's their word, by the way, and financial restraint, optimizing neither. This coupled with T-Mobile's widening advantage in 5G makes Verizon's customer base appear, quote, particularly vulnerable. Of course, T-Mobile shares have been the outperformer yet again, as you see it there, up over 26% D for the year thus far. Yeah, quite the gap there. Meanwhile, money is still flowing into fintech. That's according to Morgan Stanley's latest coverage note of the sector, finding nearly 20 percent of total global VC funding. That's $51 billion flowed into fintech deals during the first six months of 2022. So while deal activity is up, begs the question, are investors ready to get back into the public markets as well? Joining us now to discuss Morgan Stanley's James Fawcett. James, um, where is it going in these early stages? Because two of the highest profile private fintech companies that we talk about, Klarna and Stripe, have either had down rounds or marked down their valuations internally. Yeah, sure. The money's still flowing largely into into 
consumer payments area uh, and, and different parts of, of the ecosystem, but specifically the part that enables companies to accept uh, payment types and, and integrate that with operational software. To your point, uh, you're not seeing quite as much, especially with rising interest rates and, and a tightening economy generally, you're not seeing as much go into things like consumer credit oriented fintech. Uh, we also are seeing falls in, in the area of B2B or business to business payments, but that core consumer payment uh, piece of, of the ecosystem is still attracting massive amounts of capital. Right. The big elephant in the room, though, James, is Apple. I'm not sure if you saw it, but this morning there was a journal article um, with some pretty amazing stats. 75% of U.S. phones have Apple Pay activated. That's up from 50% in 2020, 10% in 2016. Anecdotally, I mean, I see it all the time. Yes, I'm in San Francisco, but people Mm -hmm. are only carrying around their phones. Um, Does this sort of lessen the proposition, considering how much cash Apple has, their ambitions in the space, the case for new players and maybe the case for more consolidation, a lot more than we've seen? Well, I think you raise an interesting point is that for Apple and Apple Pay, it doesn't really change the dynamics of the traditional payment system. You're still associating a credit or a debit card with that Apple Pay uh, token, if you will, within the phone. And, and, and so that doesn't really change the dynamics. Maybe a little bit the acceptance you're tapping instead of swiping or dipping or pulling out your card as you suggested. Uh, but what it does indicate to your point is that there's beyond just this massive amount of venture capital, that there is a lot of capital still from companies like Apple and others that would like to be in the payment space. And so what it does, in our opinion, for incumbents is it does put pressure on them to do things like be more aggressive with acquisitions, with their own R&D, et cetera. As an example, I know that there's been a lot of enthusiasm around Elliott's involvement with PayPal, and maybe mm-hmm. they would push PayPal to return more capital or or, in, or, or or improve margins faster. But I think the dynamics of Apple plus VC, et cetera, mean that PayPal really is in a position that it has to continue to invest. And, and I think that's probably a key example of, of the, the, the impact of all this money flowing around. Right. And PayPal has had a pretty brutal year, as you can see on this chart, down nearly 50 percent year to date. Um, It's interesting, James, you say that the dynamics haven't changed with um, consumer oriented payment methods like Apple Pay. You're still using a debit card or a credit card. But what is maybe this is too long term, but I do wonder this. What's preventing them from bypassing the rails, for example, in the longer run in the way that Chinese fintechs were able to, and Ant Financial was able to. Is that ultimately a threat for the visas and MasterCards of the world? I don't think so. Um, The reality is that Visa and MasterCard's ability to execute a transaction, whether it's going via Apple Pay or or some other mechanism, you can't really do it cheaper than what they do it. And you can't do it faster. You can't do it more securely. You can't do it with broader acceptance. There's literally no facet on which you can improve the performance. Now, when you look at other countries around the world, a lot of what you see, and you, you raised the example of China, is that there's a political preference, driven preference, to have a different scheme emerge and, and, and win in those markets. And if there's political interference, that's a different issue. But if you're talking about strictly traditional technology disruption and, and, and cost, et cetera, driving disruption, 
we really don't see any clear path that, that Visa and MasterCard could be disrupted by things that Apple Pay and others are doing. It used to be said that blockchain and cryptocurrencies could ultimately do that. You don't hear that as often anymore, James. Uh, but thank you for being with us, James Fawcett, Morgan Stanley. Thank you. After the break, Apple looking to ramp up its advertising business, especially on the iPhone. Of course, the stock has been an outperformer uh, to start the week and really over the last couple of months. This is the rest of big technology uh, stocks at least seem to struggle a bit. We'll have more on that coming up next. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with David Faber, Julia Borston, and Steve Kovac. We'll join us in just a minute. They're going to break down Apple's plans to ramp up its ad strategy. Uh, first, let's get an update with Seema Modi. Seema. Deidre, good to see you. Here's what's happening at this hour. New claims for unemployment benefits edged lower last week. The Labor Department says initial jobless claims fell by 2,000 to 250,000. Economists say the figures show the labor market is still strong. However, that the number is still above pre-pandemic levels when initial claims averaged 218,000 per week. The housing market continues to show signs of cooling. The National Association of Realtors says existing home sales fell 5.9% in July to the slowest sales pace since November of 2015. Tight supplies continue to push prices higher. However, the median price was up 10.8% from a year ago to just under $404,000. Do muscle cars and electric vehicles go together? Automaker Dodge is hoping so. Dodge has unveiled an electric successor to the Challenger and Charger models known for the loud, powerful engines. Those models will be discontinued at the end of next year. They are among the few such cars still available with most automakers having pulled out of that category about a decade ago. Deidre, back to you. Do you add the engine sound as a sound effect since they don't have an engine? Anyways. I think I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Apple plans to increase ads on its iPhone as uh, services revenue growth slows, and that is setting up more tension with who else? Meta, Steve Kovac, with us and has that story. Steve, Apple has already upended the ad landscape. Now they're going to slide right in there and increase their own business. Yeah, Dee, and I really want to paint a picture here of what Apple is and is not doing in advertising. There's been a lot of discussion about that this week. So here's what's not going to happen is you're going to open up your iPhone and see ads stuffed in all your apps. What's actually going to happen is in the near term, Apple is really focused on expanding app store ads. Those are the ads you see when you search for something like Spotify and get an ad for a similar app like SoundCloud. The next move, showing ads to install apps on the homepage of the app store. And there's a big reason for that. App install ads are very lucrative and offer a great return on investment for the advertiser. That'll help offset some of that slowing growth in Apple services due to the foreign exchange headwinds and customers spending less on the app store post-COVID. 
Look at the increase in spending on app install ads projected to hit about $118 billion this year. This is why Apple is putting its focus on app ads. Now, what is not happening, Apple placing ads on every surface right away, but there are more opportunities for them to do so, like Apple TV+, Plus, which is already showing MLB games for free with ads this season, and, of course, podcasts. David, I'll send it back to you. Okay. Uh, well, don't go anywhere, uh, Steve, as well. I want to also uh, bring in uh, Julia Borson, of course. She has more on how Apple's long-term advertising potential or what exactly that potential is. Julia. Well, David, Apple expanding advertising in its app store shows it tapping into what's arguably the most valuable part of the ad business right now. That's ads that respond directly to consumer intent. Not only are ads in the app store what are called direct response ads, which give buyers an immediate return on investment, but they're also in an environment where consumers are already looking to buy. Now, three companies showing the strength and recession resistance in this space Google, Google search ads grew at faster than expected, nearly 14% from the year ago period. Amazon's ad revenue grew 18% in the quarter. And Walmart's more nascent ad revenue business grew 30% in this past quarter. Now, this stands in sharp contrast to Meta. Its platforms don't have consumers showing uh, shopping intent, and its ad revenue shrunk 1% in the quarter. It's this potential to sell things to people who are already looking for products which is why Pinterest drew the interest of activist Elliot. That interest sparking a little bit of a rebound in the stock, uh, though it is down so much over the past year. Now, though Apple isn't rushing to launch ads in other areas, it does have the potential to introduce ads in some other valuable ad spaces. First, ads in maps. Snap has talked about the massive opportunity to offer ads from local businesses targeted to consumers where they are. Google's maps have also been a valuable spot for local search ads. Another key area to watch, audio ads on music, podcasts, or audiobooks. Take a look at Spotify. It grew its ad revenue in podcasts and music 31% in the quarter, and it's working to launch an audiobooks business as well. And just a, a sense of how big the podcast ad market is, that ad revenue is on track to double between this year and 2024. And it's just one of many other potential ad opportunities for Apple. Though, of course, guys, Apple's going to be very sensitive about not overwhelming its users with ads. Yeah, there's the user side of it. Um, but guys, this also feels very opportunistic for me. Um, just as Apple has kneecapped some of its biggest rivals, right? Meta, we see the effect on Meta and Snap. It's making this big push. Uh, Steve, does Apple have to be careful here not to get the attention of regulators? Do you think regulators would be concerned about this, making these moves? And we're talking about the potential, which isn't there now, but coming at a time when it's just upended the entire industry. Yeah, there's a lot of people talking about this, D, how there's concern that Apple kind of, like you said, kneecapped Facebook's ability to target apps with this privacy changes last year and instead fit, fit, favoring their own version of their ad system and using their own internal walled garden data. Now, you can argue that, you know, Facebook would tell you, look, they're stealing all this business from us. You know, they made these changes in the name of privacy, but what they're really doing is trying to steal some business from us. That's partially true. They do the benefit of this um, privacy changes on iOS is that, yes, Apple can take some of those app install ads. Again, $118 billion in spend that they're going after just this year alone. It's mm -hmm. expected to grow. 
yes, they can take some of that business, but it's also not like Apple is doing ads for like direct-to-consumer products yeah. like you see all throughout Instagram. So it's a little bit uh, uneven there. It's not a perfect comparison saying Apple did this just to take advertising from Facebook, but it did take some. Julie, any expectations in terms of how much success they may be met with in the marketplace at this point or simply too early? Well, I, I think it's too early, but it also is going to really depend on how quickly they roll out in these different formats. I think there is massive demand for those app install ads. So where they're launching definitely makes sense. And I do think there's a, a lot of demand there. But I think what's going to be constraining their growth is not demand, but rather that that caution about not overwhelming the consumer. And the fact that the Apple experience is a streamlined one. Yes, you'll see ads in the App Store, but they are not going to be um, putting too many ads everywhere else. And it's worth noting, you know, Steve and I have been talking about this, that, you know, Apple did try to do something called iAd. And this was a failed business as they were trying to get into the ad business years ago. So now I think they're going to be doing it very carefully, very slowly and very intentionally. So uh, so it doesn't have the same outcome. Yeah. And as we've learned, guys, um, data is king, especially first party data, which um, Apple has a lot of. And um, guys, the e-commerce potential has proved so lucrative. You see that Amazon has created this massive ad business very quietly over the last few years, just recently broke it out. Um, Steve, where do you think Google sits here? Um, it's making a big push in terms of e-commerce. Um, where will Apple sit within this space? Yeah, well, Google already puts a lot of ads in the Google Play app store for Android yeah. devices. But you've got to keep in mind, Deirdre, where, where do most of the customers spend? The most valuable customers are on Apple devices, the high-end customer. More, Even though Android has massive market share, way more than Apple, the, all the money is spent within the iOS ecosystem. So it's not as valuable a business within the, right. those App Store ads on Google. And of course, Android has the opportunity to collect a lot more data about their users and use that to inform your Google profile. Well, guys, thank you. That was a great uh, deep dive into what Apple could potentially do here. Appreciate it. Coming up, why one firm has gone cold on SoftBank, dumping almost all of its position in the technology investment group. We're back in just a moment. Some investors losing faith in SoftBank's future. Elliott Management disclosing this week that it sold nearly all of its stake in the fund per the Financial Times. The paper couldn't learn the exact timing of the sale, but a source told them it took place earlier this year as technology stocks took a tumble. Now, this news comes as Massasun's mega fund reported a record $23 billion quarterly loss just last week. Elliott had been in SoftBank for two plus years, scooping up more than $2.5 billion worth of the fund back in February of 2020. That was, of course, when the $100 billion Vision Fund was still on the rise and Elliott had been pushing for share buybacks. Now the fund has lost more than 50 percent of its market value since its highs in March of 2021. David, David uh, you spent a lot of time covering SoftBank and Masasan. Uh, yes. He's got a 300-year vision. These are peaks and troughs for him. It has been a rough year, coming on the back of a pretty good one. Yeah, I, it was interesting in the last call as well the video chat that they included as a part of that, talking about how he said how he was going to uh, adopt a more defensive tone. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, a lot of those are marks on existing investments, uh, as many in private investors have to do, including many of the large hedge funds that we know as well that are very active in the private market, D. Um, yeah. You know, we'll, ha we'll have to see if he is rewarded over time for his so-called vision, but this has been a uh, a difficult time. As, you know, as for Elliot here, 
they've obviously sold most of the stake. I think they sold uh, uh, along the way as well uh, and have moved on. But, um, you know, I thought the most interesting part of SoftBank recently was the decision to actually truly part with yes. uh, a good amount of their Alibaba stake. You know, mm -hmm. they had forward contracts, but they actually did have the sale take place of what they took their stock, their, their stake down from almost 24 to almost uh, roughly 15, 14.8%, I believe. Yeah, that was really an end of an era, especially the way that they are able to reinvest in BABA. That's now coming to an end. Of course, Masayoshi Son's most legendary investment. David, I also like to look at certain metrics that Masa-san looks at, too, like net asset value. He's always going on about this and talking about how uh, SoftBank as a whole is undervalued. This reading has dropped to its lowest since 2017. By the end of March, this is a price of shares relative to the value of its assets. So um, you wonder, especially with the market rally we've seen in tech over the last six weeks, perhaps this could be looking attractive. I think that they're going to increase the number of buybacks as well. He's always a believer. Also, loan-to-value ratio, though. This is why he has to cut down on stakes, selling companies like Coupon, which have rallied in the last six weeks, too, keeping below that target of 25 percent. Yeah, I, you know, again, the marks are very interesting in terms of overall where SoftBank is going to mark things, certainly things that are not trading publicly. Obviously, it does have stakes in companies that have since gone public, although you well know many of the vintage 2021 IPOs have performed terribly uh, in yeah. that time. Um, I haven't talked to him in ages, D. I'd love to sit down with him again. Masa, if you're watching, anytime, anywhere. <laughs> can remember our last conversation. We delved into the Roman Empire and the future of AI and the great world we'd all be inhabiting at some point as a result of at least what was his vision. He's very philosophical and existential, I have to say. <laughs> his earnings call is one of, one of the most enjoyable that I like to listen to. <laughs> yeah, in, uh, indeed. Uh, all right, let's move on here. And before we head to break, check out shares of Wolf Speed. That stock is up 29% right now. It's a semiconductor company, and it did beat estimates for the fourth quarter. You can read more about what happened there on CNBC.com. We're back in a moment. Another gut check, this time on analog devices. The shares uh, had reversed, have reversed early losses. This after Needham downgraded it to a hold, saying the uh, semiconductor industry overall just starting to see a broader slowdown, and it's difficult to justify a higher multiple for this stock in particular heading into that potential downturn. Now, that call comes after the company did beat estimates for its latest quarter, although it did also issue a warning that economic uncertainty is beginning to impact bookings. Coming up, Amazon wants to be more like TikTok, the company trying a new TikTok-like feed for shoppers in its app. More details on that task later. We're back in two. All right, we're, we're checking our gut a lot this hour. Let's, uh, let's take a look at some chip-related names, which are uh, up rather nicely. In fact, uh, they're helping the NASDAQ. Uh, into positive territory. You can see Marvell leading the way up almost five and a half. There it is, five and a half percent this morning so far, Deep. 
That's what we do on Tech Check, uh, David. A lot of gut checks. The Nasdaq, meanwhile, is up uh, four tenths of a percent. Let's take a deep dive, though, into the private equity landscape. More than three and a half trillion dollars in dry powder sitting on the sidelines through the first half of the year. That is according to data out of Bain & Company. But with all of that capital waiting to be deployed and with the cost of borrowing on the rise, the street is starting to get creative. Take a look at Citrix. Bankers for the company hunting for a way to avoid losses on the $15 billion in buyout financing on their books, reportedly trying to sell investors on a new euro-denominated loan with lower debt commitments than the original deal. Uh, David, you covered the space so closely. I wanted to get your take on this and the current environment um, with more risk aversion, let's say, at least aside from the last six weeks. Um, do we see more all cash deals, especially you see that from the likes of Tomo Bravo? Yeah, I, you know, I think, listen, uh, debt financing is always going to be an important component of most go private deals. And they have certainly been um, quite frequent amongst the M&A uh, that we've been discussing. Uh, and we'll continue to. Citrix is really important. It's very interesting, obviously, that we've chosen to focus on it because much of the buyout market is focused on it as well. Uh, they're going to take losses, the banks here, given when they made the commitment and the levels at which they made that commitment. Although one would expect with the decrease in rates recently that they'd be in a better position yeah. to perhaps mitigate some of those losses, D. So, you know, we will keep a close eye on it. It's not clear to me they're really going to begin an aggressive marketing of this until after Labor Day. But financing obviously does remain a very important component of an overall healthy uh, buyout environment, particularly in technology that you follow so closely, mm-hmm. and it's still not clear it's all there yet. You know, uh, it, it, is the market opened a bit, perhaps? Yeah. But I think a lot of people are saying, let's just wait until September. Right. And how big or how long is that window going to be as well? Uh, meanwhile, if you missed part of the show, do not forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Another gut check. This time it's Walgreens. <laughs> are they just doing this to have fun we with are. me, D? I don't know. Yeah, all right. There's We're a look at oh. you now. <laughs> My gut is hurting. We've done so many of these. Um, you can see it's down uh, over 5% this morning. Uh, this, of course, is uh, the Dow is hugging a flat line. Uh, this probably has something to do with that potential uh, payment they're going to have to make in terms of opioids. Uh, deep, but uh, you can see it's not been a great performer at all during the course of the year. No. Gut health, very important, David. Caught on to us. Yes. Um, we talked about this earlier. Is Amazon taking on TikTok? Well, it would seem that way, at least briefly. The e commerce giant reportedly testing a new feature in its app that would allow users to see a TikTok like photo or video feed of products that shoppers can share with each other. This is a move by the company to hopefully boost user engagement. The beta feature currently being assessed internally by employees, but could eventually launch more broadly. Amazon joining a longer list of tech companies with their eye on TikTok. David, I wouldn't read too deeply into this. Amazon tries a lot of things. I remember they had this Pinterest imitation. I can't even remember what it was called. It lasted for such a short amount of time. It's such a powerhouse TikTok and obviously ByteDance, that company worth so much money, D. We don't talk about it enough. Yes. Anyways, thank you for joining us today, David. Uh, Give you another gut check another day. Let's get to Frank Holland and the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and 
producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.